We are now having 40 plus thousand new cases a day. I would not be surprised if we go up to 100,000 a day if this does not turn around. One step forward, two steps back. That is the trajectory of combating coronavirus in this country. The country needs a president with a plan to fight the virus and keep the economy open, not to deny reality. We are now at a new and crucial stage of the pandemic here in the United States. Infection rates are going up in nearly 40 states. And there was even a point last week when we had over 40,000 new patients diagnosed in a single day. As we head into the 4th of July weekend and the peak of summer, many states are still slowly reopening. We're already seeing huge crowds gather at beaches and restaurants. People are behaving like this pandemic is over. But the reality is that we're still not even over our first wave, and there could be more to come. I don't want to be an alarmist, but I don't think we can let our guard down either. I always try to balance the two. And I think it's sinking in for a lot of people that we have to be realistic about how we live and dance with this virus, that we can't go from isolation to a complete lack of caution, that there has to be a middle ground. And we also have to be prepared for the possibility that things could still get worse. It's a lot to process. So I wanted to try and make sense of all of this with someone who's been finding that balance in public health crises for decades. So today, I'm speaking with Michael Osterholm. He's the director of the Center for Infectious Disease Research and Policy at the University of Minnesota. He was also Minnesota's state epidemiologist for 15 years. I've been following Mike's career for years, and I really do admire him. Back in 2017, he wrote a must-read book called Deadliest Enemy, Our War Against Killer Germs. In it, he talks about the most pressing infectious disease threats of our day, and how we can best address them. At the top of that list, preventing and preparing for a global flu pandemic. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, CNN's chief medical correspondent, and this is Coronavirus, Fact versus Fiction. I was thinking about this podcast today, and I thought to myself, it must be in some ways... Uh, a slash of being infuriating and Groundhog's Day for you, given that when I read your articles going back 15 years, some of the language in these articles is exactly the same, the exact same thing in terms of what we should be doing to prepare for a pandemic. You know, I actually, um, I don't have those feelings um, because we don't have time. We are just in the beginning of this. People don't realize that when we talk about the sizable number of cases, you know, if this is going to take us 50 to 60% of the population minimum to get infected before we reach herd immunity without a vaccine, that's a long ways from this 5 to 7% that currently have been infected. Is that what's likely to happen? I mean, is it just a question not if, but when and how quickly that percentage of the country ultimately becomes infected? I mean, that's the unfortunate reality of the math. So one of the things I keep uh, trying to put forward is what is our plan if we're making the assumption the vaccine is going to be here in 10 months, 12 months? What's our plan if it's two years? What's our plan if we don't have one? And we need to have a option for each one of these. Let's say we do get some sort of steady state of, of infection in this country. We send kids back to school in the fall. Uh, we open up some businesses. We protect the vulnerable populations as much as possible. 
could that just be life for the next couple, three years? I think that is an absolute possibility. And that's the kind of conversation we need to have right now. I look at the world of of COVID-19 as two guardrails. On one side is the idea of locking down like they did in Wuhan, where it worked pretty effectively and really drove it down. But it virtually brought the economy to a standstill and, in a sense, began to destroy society. On the other guardrail, you have this willy-nilly transmission, which is going to literally bring down healthcare as we know it. You know, here we are in the in Minneapolis, Minnesota, and we have nurses and doctors in our ICUs caring for these COVID patients that have to wear the same N95 respirator five days in a row because we don't have any other ones. We're that short right now. We're, we're not even in the biggest crisis yet. And so I think that somehow we have to figure out how to craft that middle lane. Are you uh, worried about your own health? How, how worried are you? You know, I wouldn't be honest if I didn't tell you that there have been nights I've gone to bed tired and asked myself, I wonder if tomorrow's the day. You know, this is, uh, the chances are, are on the virus's side right now. Yeah, it, it's like gravity. It never gives up. You know, even if, if, even if we do for a day, it doesn't. So, you know, if it's going to happen, I'm going to get this at some point. Then what, what does it mean then for us going forward? If this is going to happen, there is a sense of inevitability about it. How should someone approach just this thinking about it? You know, I think the very first step is just acknowledging that this is a possibility and that we are all vulnerable. You know, humankind has gotten through every major infectious disease crisis dating back to the caves. But it, in some cases, it extracted a, an incredibly painful price. And so what our job is at this point is not to deny that that price is going to be paid. It's how do we minimize it? And I think it's at an individual level. That's at a uh, societal level. And I've come to the personal decision that at Father's Day, I could go and hug each of my grandchildren for 30 seconds to a minute outdoors and then continue to distance. And I felt comfortable with that, knowing that that was not a compromise that was based on my best science, but was also based on the tug of my heart. And so I think as a society, we're all trying to balance what is the science and what is that tug of heart. I, I uh, took my kids to go see their grandmother, my, my wife's mother, the other day. And we met her outside. We were all masked. And my kids are 15, 13, 11, all girls. And then they were like, you know, they, they're very affectionate. They wanted to hug grandma. But then they looked at me, and it was an awkward sort of moment. Is it okay, Dad? And, and you know, it was, it was almost like as if they were going to do something illegal or something for a second. And then they went over, and Grandma just said, oh, come here, and just a quick hug. And, and then they walked away, and then they were looking around to see if anybody was watching them. It was really weird. But I, I guess everyone is sort of making these own decision matrices for themselves. Well, congratulations. I think this, you, you followed the science, and you followed your heart. And that, to me, is a win-win. Yeah, I, I, I thought so, too. And they definitely felt, felt good about it afterwards. And, you know, you know, if you look at places like Taiwan, New Zealand, are those countries the models of success, or have they just done it right now? If you have a contagious virus that is circumnavigating the globe, unless you make yourself a bubble in the world, which is really hard to do, isn't it true that you're going to see these waves around the world or no? Yeah, no, I think you hit the nail right on the head. Every place that has been touted as they've got it down right 
ultimately has virus introduced into the country or there was ongoing transmission that was missed. Uh, you know, even, even New Zealand, you know, they have done a remarkable job as an island country with 5.2 million people have been able to literally stop indigenous transmission. But since they declared themselves virus-free, they've had at least 11 introductions into the country, you know, as an island. <laughs> and so I think that's the point that people don't realize that you, you're as good as your last hour of prevention. Where, where, where did we go wrong? I mean, you've been writing about this for a long time, the idea of pandemic preparedness, and then we don't, and, and that's across several administrations, not just this particular administration. Is that just going to be human behavior until we're slapped in the face with something that we're really not going to pay that close attention to it? I think that is human behavior. I think that if, if we had brought together a group of medical experts, media, government leaders uh, 10 months ago, and it said, let me paint the following scenario for you. One, we're going to have a terrible pandemic. It's going to be the worst we've seen since 1918. And then I had said that we also were going to have a major economic hit. The likes, at least for a while, reminded us of the Great Depression. And we were going to have the most serious and challenging racial issues and tensions since the 1960s, all happening at one time. People wouldn't believe you. Right. But it's like insurance. You don't buy insurance for your house to burn down hoping it burns down. You hope it never burns down. But in those rare cases of lightning hits it and it does, you're prepared. And I think people are now understanding the cost of not being prepared for this one. And I would just go one step further. Imagine the unimaginable that you and I were sitting here talking six months from now about an ongoing coronavirus pandemic and a flu pandemic on top of it. And so I think that's what we have to at least consider because the cost of not considering that is just so great. But if we said, look, we, we, we're willing to, to do what it takes to be prepared, what, what would that look like? Um, one is a universal flu vaccine. And is that a possibility? Is that a real, real possibility? I do think that we can have a universal flu vaccine. I think the research is very uh, exciting. I don't think that you know, it's going to be a perfect vaccine that means it stops all flu, but I think it can be durable. Uh, I think it can surely cover many different strains, including new emerging strains. And that would be by itself such a game changer to take pandemic flu. It'd be like taking smallpox off the agenda. So I think that's the kind of thing we need to invest in, those kind of platforms. You talk about understanding the global supply chain. What does preparedness look like if you, if you could spend whatever you needed to spend and, and, and start preparing now? We don't understand in this world of modern manufacturing the vulnerabilities we have. There are 156 drugs in the United States that people need every day or they die. Of those 156 drugs, 100% of them are generic. Of those generic drugs, the vast majority are made offshore. Uh, right now, a, almost 90% of all the antibiotics we're using in our intensive care units to treat COVID patients with secondary bacterial infections are largely made in China and India. And any global supply chain that gets interrupted because of a pandemic like we saw in China early on impacts the whole world. And so we have a whole number of drugs. We're in complete shortage standards all the time. Yeah, it is amazing. And I think, you know, a lot of people sort of saw these supply chain issues play out real time with this with this pandemic because uh, you mentioned the drugs, but then even personal protective equipment, talking about certain um, components for ventilators, 
things like that. All of a sudden, everybody on the planet wants the same thing. You came out, I believe it was around January 20th, and basically said this this is uh, likely to become a pandemic at that point. It was end of January. I, I remember watching you. It wasn't until m- mid to late March, I think, when the World Health Organization did the same thing. You clearly were way ahead of the curve on this. And ha- how is that? What is your process? You know, first of all, I work with an incredible team of people that are constantly collecting information. Every day uh, at CIDRAP, our Center for Infectious Research and Policy, and we picked up on the situation of Wuhan in December. But by the second week of January, it was very clear that this wasn't a situation like SARS or MERS to us. We felt there was more than sufficient information coming out of China at the time that said this was person-to-person transmission early in the infection, if not even prior to uh, any onset of symptoms, and this was a severe disease. One of the things that probably, if I look back on it, was one of the most important things that I've done or our center has done. On January 20th, we went and met and with senior executives at the 3M company and said, this is going to be a pandemic. And for whatever reasons, they trusted our assessment, believed it. And they literally on January 21st went to 100% production 24-7, seven days a week. And over the period between then and early March, when the federal government finally came to them seeking additional N95 respirators, they produced additional millions in that time period. So I think that, you know, it was one of those ones where we should have seen it, could have seen it, and um, and we didn't. I, I, I don't know if there's an answer to this question, but I do wonder, because I think about this for myself a little bit sometimes. So you walk out of that 3M meeting on January 20th, again, very early in, in this whole thing, and these guys are now going to make a huge decision based on what you just told them going into 24-7 production. Does part of you say, whew, I hope I got that right? But you're absolutely right. I mean, you can't know how many times I've been involved with outbreaks where we had to pull the pump handle with incomplete information. The kind of choices were don't pull it, wait for a while, and more people are going to get sick and die, or pull it and potentially be wrong in knowing that everyone will remember that case. You'll be as good as your last case. That's what they'll remind you of for the rest of your career. And so I think it's just at that point where you have the balance of information, you're willing to stay what I want to be the parent of that child that died knowing that someone had information that could have saved that child's life. And then you have to balance those two. And that's kind of what I've done my whole career. Could this go the way of SARS? I mean, if, if, if the virus runs out of an easy way to jump from host to host because of what we do behaviorally, could this sort of wither away? We have now seeded the world. And the world is going to be a replenishing faucet of virus for everyone for years to come. I mean, even if we have a vaccine in the next 12 months, remember most of the world will not. And so this is gonna be a house on fire for a long time. Uh, thank you very much. As you say, we're, we're all learning together. So I hope to uh, talk to you again soon. Okay, thanks, Sanjay. Finding that balance between science and humanity, between hope and honesty, that's what we have to be able to do to truly live with this virus right now. And in the future, that means being prepared. We can't ignore the possibility that our situation could get worse, whether it's having a flu pandemic on top of the coronavirus or not getting a vaccine at all. But what we can do, like Mike does, is be steady, tell the truth, and plan for it. Because the cost of not planning for it is higher than the alternative. I think most people realize that by now. If you want to hear more from Michael, 
He hosts a weekly podcast with the Center for Infectious Disease Research and Policy called the Osterholm Update. We'll be back tomorrow. Thanks for listening.